24 of Logicast, the AWS news podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined, as always, uh, by my colleague, uh, John, as always. Good all. How are you doing today, John? You're really labouring that, aren't you? You, you, can't, you can't call me John, as always, Goodall, and say you're joined, as always, by John, as always. It's just, it's just too much. It's yeah, too much. Editor wouldn't like it, would they? They would. Uh, <laughs> it, it, word would tell me to delete repeated words um, from the uh, from the audio. Yeah. I've said it now, so, you know, I can't take it back. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> um, and uh, we're not joined today by any special guests, uh, which is a real shame. So uh, you're just going to have to put up with uh, me and uh, John, as always. Um, so uh, we did have a guest lined up for today, unfortunately, uh, family commitments uh, got the better of him so uh, we will be back uh, with uh, guests from the community next week and uh, hopefully we will be rebooking today's guest uh, for a future episode uh, which is uh, more convenient for him um, so uh, if you're new to the podcast um, every week I collate a list of AWS news which I share via my weekly AWS news roundup newsletter and then John and I uh, pick a subset of the articles from the newsletter that we'd like to talk about in more detail so, of course, we've got a number of articles this week that we would like to discuss. And the first of those is from our friends at The Register. Um, not quite as sensational as uh, some L-Reg headlines, but uh, uh, amusing nonetheless. Um, the headline of this article uh, is uh, AWS makes its hybrid cloud behave a bit more like normal boring on-prem servers. So why on earth would we want to do that? Well, of course, AWS's hybrid cloud option is um, Outposts, um, so they have a range of um, form factor options for you to run AWS in your own data center. I think now starting off from a single uh, U, uh, single rack unit server, going right up to a fully populated rack of network servers and storage that you can run various AWS services on, like uh, EC2, um, RDS. I think you can run some of the container services on there as well. Um, but uh, what's this article going on about, John, making its hybrid cloud behave a bit more like normal, boring on-prem servers? Well, the primary thing here is it's about licensing, which is really not that interesting for an interesting podcast. I like to think we're interesting, but this is quite boring. Well, um, we've got but... boring in the article title, so hopefully we're not <laughs> setting expectations too high. No, yeah, well, we, we get more interesting as we go. Um, so, yeah, as you say, Outposts have um, a number of offerings uh, from, um, I think, one U or possibly two U, because a one U server is only about like that big. They're really tiny. So um, 1.75 inches. Not sure what that is in metric, but a rack unit is 1.75 inches of height. So. Yeah. So a one U server is really small. Um, and so I think they start at either one or two U and then they go up to a whole rack. Um, what they're doing here is basically meaning that outpost racks can be configured with whatever hardware you like, and then you can use dedicated hosts within those so that it's your hardware in with their hardware that you're renting exclusively in your data center. Right, cool. This is this is neither here nor there, but what makes it interesting is you can then use um, dedicated hosts with outposts, great, so that you can 
use some of the cloud services, be a bit more cloudy, start on your cloud migration journey while still being stuck with old per core, per socket, per whatever licensing models with some of your software. So SQL Server is famously bad for this. Oracle is famously bad for this. And Oracle is called out in the article as well that they're famously bad at licensing on something like a per socket basis, which for listeners that aren't familiar with CPU architectures and how servers are put together, per socket licensing effectively means that um, everywhere you put a CPU, that has a socket, okay? Laptops, desktops, whatever, have one socket, but servers can have more than one. Yeah, you can have two, four, 10, whatever. Mainframes, I think the AS400 and the IBM DB2 were famous for having dozens and dozens of servers and uh, CPUs and sockets, but you just had to unlock them. So you had to pay, someone would come, type in a code and unlock some more CPU for you. And they charge you based on the number of sockets that your system is using, which is it's a weird model and it doesn't really work in the cloud space. Oracle are very bad at this. SQL Server have got better. But the idea being is that this allows you to kind of get a bit more cloudy while still using your existing quite expensive licenses whilst you look at migrating to an even more cloudy option potentially. You said the word socket an awful lot there and it made me cringe slightly because um, I'm going to go off on a complete tangent now. I had to empty the socket drawer of my toolbox about three times on Saturday looking for a um, cassette uh, release socket, cassette lock ring release socket for my bicycle um, as I was maintaining it for a bike ride that I did yesterday. And in the end, uh, after emptying and refilling the socket drawer about three times, I had to drive to Halfords and buy another uh, cassette lock ring release socket Um because I couldn't find the one that I already have. So uh, so I just wanted to say the word socket lots of times as well, because uh, you must have said it about 10 times mm. in that previous preamble. So um, completely irrelevant to uh, AWS and Outpost racks. But uh, yeah, that's my uh, my little anecdote about sockets. <laughs> See, the only socket I ever use is a 10 mil. Although I did once have to go to tool station very rapidly because I'd taken half my car seats out and couldn't get them back in. So I then had to go get some spline bits for my sockets. Mm. Yes, this is. It's always annoying when you have a, a very extensive tool collection, as I know both you and I do, John, um, because we can usually see yours in the background. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, when you get halfway through a job and you realise that you haven't got the appropriate tool for the job, and uh, my nearest tool shop is about three miles away, so uh, down very slow roads with uh, very slow speed limits. So um, anyway, but um, yeah, so I guess the whole uh, dedicated host function, that's something that's always existed with an EC2, right? So if, you, yeah, if you've got yeah, this yeah. licensing problem in the cloud, so not in the cloud in your data center, but actually in the cloud in Amazon's data centers, you've always been able to do the dedicated hosts thing. Yeah, but there's some licenses that tie it up to hardware and then AWS will want to kind of rotate the hardware and all this kind of thing. So this kind of simplifies that somewhat. And it also makes sysadmin types a bit happier because they can see the thing it's assigned to. Cool. Well, nice to see that new feature being rolled out. Uh, I'm not sure what the adoption is like on Outposts. Um, it's a very specific sort of product. It's not the sort of product that us as consultants would generally see, mostly because our customers are in the small and medium-sized business spaces, and they're not um, going to have massive, massive data centers full of racks of servers because they might have been running on one server or in a colo or something. This is very much something that the enterprise space probably regulated is going to be using. 
Yeah, I know we've definitely spoken to some of our customers about it, but uh, we've certainly not seen any of them adopt it just yet. But um, yeah, it's, it's horses for courses, isn't it? You know, if people have got specific uh, data residency requirements, et cetera, then uh, potentially this is one way to address it. So, um, or they've got those products that you mentioned um, that are still licensing by the socket. There we go. I got to use the word in the correct context. So uh, moving swiftly on from uh, sockets and toolboxes and uh, outposts racks, um, the next article we've got uh, is um, from one of our AWS hero colleagues. Well, not technically not colleagues because neither of us are heroes. We're, we're community builders, but uh, AWS heroes is also uh, an AWS community program. Um, so this is an article published on Dev.2 uh, by Yan Kui, uh, who's an AWS hero. And it's about testing step functions, how to skip time when testing timeout and wait states. Um, so this is very much your bag, John, the whole uh, testing of serverless. I know it's something that uh, has been uh, frustrating you quite a bit, uh, perhaps not for this particular reason, uh, but uh, certainly has been frustrating you recently. Uh, but uh, I'm not a serverless developer, but I did read the article, and I can imagine how frustrating it might be uh, if you've got a long timeout in your function and you just want to test it and see if it works and you don't want to have to wait for the duration of the timeout. So, um yeah, is this something that uh, something that you might be using yourself, John? Well, I mean, you've kind of stolen half of what I was going to say about this, but I'll, Sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll reword. So testing step functions and everyone that I've spoken to about this um, that work with step functions in the AWS community. So one of our former guests, one of the chaps that was running uh, a talk at the summit on the community summit as well talks about testing step functions. It's always awful. It's always hard. There's no kind of good way of doing it. Put that at the convergence with some of my other work history. I was a software tester for my sins for a little while. And one of the key things that you need to do in software testing is anything that forces an arbitrary wait. So in some retailers, you could put an order in and then cancel it within 30 minutes. You know, so the system's going to sit there and do nothing for 30 minutes. That causes real issues with automated testing suites because they just, they're not built to sit there and wait for 30, 40, 50 minutes, whatever. You know, They can cope with a couple, but not very long. Step functions has the capacity to wait because it needs it for, you know, I want to be triggered by this event and then wait for an hour because the server might be temporary and I'm gonna, not going to try and tag something that's not there afterwards, for argument's sake. Testing those workflows that have these big long waits is a pain in the backside because the maximum wait time could be something like 24 hours. And step functions are the maximum runtime of a step function is a year. So can you imagine testing that that has several two, three, four days worth of waiting, and it's allowed to run for six months. That's just mad. What this is doing is this is showing you a way. It's not kind of official as such. It's not a new tool. It's just a way that you can subvert that wait to something that's much more palatable. So rather than your wait being five minutes, you can create the step function in step functions local and then override that wait state with a much shorter uh, much shorter timeout which means that you can then actually reasonably test it in a normal sort of time frame and when i say normal i mean if you look at something like pytest or, or jest for typescript their standard kind of timeouts for tests is five or ten seconds it's not very long at all you know things need to be executing quickly so this is a way of solving that problem for step functions with step functions local i don't like it I understand it, and I, I like the description, and I like the article, and all that. I don't like that it has to be a thing, because what you're basically doing is you're using code 
as part of your testing suite to change the code that you're testing. That's okay. It's borderline because you're changing your timeout, but it's quite bad that you should have to be able to do that, really. So what would you like to do instead? Um, I don't, the problem is I don't see that there's a better option. Um, I'd, I'd like to be able to, I, I get that these things are needed. I do, I get that. I'd like to be able to have a test framework that you can use that does all of that kind of thing for you, where it just nullifies wait states automatically. You know, it mm. sees a wait state and goes, okay, that's now half a second or a second. doesn't matter what it is. It's just now it's a second. So that you can kind of skim through things much more quickly. Um, yeah, I don't like that you kind of have to do it yourself. It's it's good that it's there. It's nice that it's an option. I don't like that you have to do it yourself. But step functions and serverless is still quite new. So I guess these things will come with time. Yeah, got it. Cool. Okay. Um, so let's skip on then to our next article, um, which is an article on IT Pro Today, um, which is um, comparing and contrasting two services which allow you to run apps on AWS, AWS Elastic Beanstalk versus Fargate. What are the differences? And when I first read this, I thought, well, there's loads of differences and not many similarities. Um, it's another one of those articles which is just kind of comparing and trusting two different ways of doing something. Um, and I suppose they could be viable options for the same thing, uh, but often wouldn't necessarily be used in the same scenarios. So, um, yeah. Let, let me not steal your thunder on this one, John. <laughs> Tell us a bit more about uh, Beanstalk and Fargate and uh, whether or not there are any similarities. Well, that's probably the quickest thing because there's not many. Yeah, um, well, you um, hit the nail on the head in your little. You hit the nail on the head in your little preamble there. They are not two services that you would ordinarily compare with each other, primarily because one Beanstalk is a service and the other Fargate is actually not a service. It's something that. EKS and ECS can use. So it's not a service in and of its own right. So it's not, I'm going to run this on Fargate. No, it's I'm going to run it on ECS Fargate or EKS Fargate. So it, it's it's kind of an apples to chalk comparison. They're just, they're, they're very different things. You can use them for similar things. I mean, you can draw with an apple, you can eat chalk, but I wouldn't recommend doing either of those things. Um, where it comes to the similarities is they can both run Docker. That's kind of it, right? You can run Docker containers in a Beanstalk stack. It'll spin up a server for you and it'll run, deploy the container and it'll kind of run it. Fargate is only running Docker, be that through Kubernetes or through um, ECS, which I think is like Docker Swarm fundamentally. In terms of the configuration, the similarities and all the rest of it, yeah, it's all kind of done through YAML. So I suppose it's sort of the same. Um, Beanstalk doesn't actually use CloudFormation. It runs like on top of CloudFormation and it boils down to CloudFormation. ECS can be done through CloudFormation. Uh, ECS, Fargate for ECS can be done through CloudFormation. So you kind of configure it in a similar sort of way. It, yeah, I thought I'd pick this one out because as I say, it's uh, you wouldn't ordinarily compare them, but it's interesting to see, and I'm kind of stealing an idea from Corey Quinn here, the number of different ways you can run containers in AWS. The reason I say I'm stealing it from him is he's run three distinct blogs now on 17 services that run containers in AWS. Three times. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit mad. But yes, you can actually run containers on both of them. Would you want to? Uh, maybe, maybe not. It depends on what you're doing. But I did think it was an interesting thing to compare, hence I picked it out. 
Yeah, I think the only real comparison is they're just two ways of running applications. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously the applications have to be packaged. Well, they don't need to be packaged, I guess, uh, to run on Beanstalk is the uh, one of the benefits of that particular service. Um, but, uh, you know, so it's less less steps required on behalf of the developer, I guess, to get something up and running in Beanstalk. But as I understand it, it is quite a bit more restrictive uh, in terms of what you can actually run. Um yeah, so Beanstalk is very, it's technically platform as a service, technically. I mean, it's it's kind of just servers that have been obfuscated, but fundamentally, yes, it's a quick and easy way of getting an application deployed in the cloud and going and running and it doing its thing. Fargate is not that in the slightest, but they're both doing the same thing, which is, I suppose, why they're trying to compare them, in that you don't have to worry about the servers themselves. You worry about, I want my thing to run. Here's what it looks like. Yeah. Cool. Um, and it goes on to talk about cost. Um, so it's a much difference, do you think, in terms of running applications in Beanstalk versus running them in Fargate? Oh, massively. So Fargate, you don't pay per server, you pay for virtual time, basically. Much like most serverless services, you pay for compute cycles. You don't pay for actual server resources. Beanstalk, it just ties back to EC2. So you pay EC2 rates. Both of them in and of themselves are also actually quite different because Beanstalk itself is a free service. Fargate isn't because Fargate, as I say, it's not a service in and of its own right. It's a way of running things for a couple of other services. So, yeah, it, again, it's very different. It does make me think why they picked these two, but it's certainly interesting. Mm, perhaps there's a, an, an undercurrent that we're unaware of as to why uh, <laughs> hmm. why these two things should be compared. But it's not the first time we've seen uh, apples and chalk compared uh, in the, on the podcast. I can't remember what the previous uh, odd comparisons were, but uh, we've definitely seen them before. Anyway, uh, moving on. Um, We've got our next article from the AWS Training and Certification blog, um, which is all about updates that are coming to the AWS Certified Cloud Practitioner exam. So I think uh, it's fair to say we've both got the Cloud yes. Practitioner exam. You did yours. I yeah. did mine a long, a long time ago. So there's probably been many updates since I did mine. But you um, did yours so long ago that you forgot that they didn't auto-renew. Because you've done I've, so many exams since then that they just kept renewing and you yeah, didn't exactly. notice. I thought I needed to do it again, but apparently not. I've still got it. So uh, that's nice. Um, but uh, of course, Cloud Practitioner is the entry level. It's the kind of the first certification available of the, uh, I think, 12 different AWS certifications that you can study uh, and sit exams for. Um, and the Cloud Practitioner certification is really kind of designed more for less technical people so project managers commercial people in organizations etc just to give them a kind of a high level overview uh, of the basic fundamentals of cloud a little bit on cloud economics high level on some of the more commonly used uh, services within aws etc so it's a really good uh, starting point i think they call it the foundational yeah it's the foundation level because yeah. the, the levels are foundation associate professional and then specialty sits off to the side so it's actually the only exam that sits in the foundational mm -hmm. level. Um, and it's often where people start their AWS certification journeys uh, before they then go on to uh, to study for some of the, the more specialist exams. So, um, so this article is talking about some changes that are coming. Um, 
from the 18th of September or the 19th of September um, 2023. So talk us through the changes, John. What's going to be different for people sitting their cloud practitioner exam from the 19th of September onwards? Yeah, so the article itself does kind of give you this breakdown. The four domains are still the same-ish. They've kind of expanded them a little bit. So this is actually only the first time that the cloud practitioner has been refreshed. We're now on the third generation of um, Solutions Architect. We're on the second generation now of um, Dev Associate DevOps. Don't know about SysOps. Um, and I suspect the specialty exams have been refreshed a couple of times as well. But yes, this is the first time that this has been refreshed. So this is actually long, long overdue because the cloud practitioner exam basically didn't reflect reality. So they've now kind of updated it, which is good. In terms of the changes, the first two um, domains, well, there's four domains. There's in the old exam, there's cloud concepts, security and compliance, technology, and billing and pricing, right? Four. In the new one, there's cloud concepts, security and compliance, same. Now it's cloud technology and services, rather than just technology, and billing, pricing, and support. So they've put another thing on the end there. So they've subtly changed what the domain areas are. I suspect if you could pass the old one, you'd be able to pass the new one without learning anything new. But the the, the domains are subtly different. And they've changed the weightings a little bit as well. So in the old one, cloud concepts was 26%. In the new one, it's 24. Security and compliance in the old one was 25. It's now 30. So there's an enhanced kind of view that security and compliance is more important. Technology was 33%. It's now technology and services is now 34%. So that's kind of about the same. And billing and pricing has dropped from 16% to billing, pricing, and support at 12%. So what they've functionally done is they've pinched a bit from concepts and billing and added it on to security. So they've kind of said, no, we think security needs more kind of, of, a, of a focus than, than these other areas do. It was already the, uh, it wasn't the highest and it's still not the highest because technology and services is still the highest, but it's coming much higher up the chain now. It was third, it's now second and not by anywhere near as much of a margin either. There's a couple of bits that they've added. So domain one now includes things covered by the cloud adoption framework, which was updated in 2021. So this is still, this is not new. This is not new by any measure, but it was a case of the exam not reflecting reality. Domain two now includes higher level governance and some more services. Domain three now has more topics broken down, so databases, network storage, and so on, which it didn't have before. And domain four is now support as a consolidated topic rather than kind of being split between the other domain areas. So it kind of makes sense. In terms of training, the training is kind of no different, really. The content of the training will be different, but the way you train for it is going to be pretty well the same. It's go off on your skill builder. That's kind of the uh, the recommendation because it's free, it's self-paced, it's gamified, it's online. You just go and use it. It doesn't cost you anything. Rather than spending 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds on a third-party kind of slides-based course. And I know you and I prefer those sorts of things, but a free training is always what AWS are going to kind of push you towards because it's free, you know. Yeah. Great. Why not? And if you want to fly around on a hoverboard solving business challenges in a virtual world, you can do it that way as well. Um, I think I'm a bit old for that one. Uh, it's kind of passed me by. But uh, I mean, I'm not that old that gamified anything annoys me. It's just, I don't know. I just, if, if I do it kind of the traditional slide-based way with 
demos and all the rest of it, it feels much more like university did with lectures and workshops and all that sort of thing. So I suppose that's just kind of what I'm used to. Yeah, exactly. Same here. Uh, for me, games are games and learning is learning, but uh, those worlds are obviously converging. So uh, school and university was incredibly boring when I went. Uh, there was no fun element of it at all, not, not on the learning side anyway. <laughs> obviously, uh, outside of the, uh, the le bar. lecture theatre, um, then uh, there was plenty of fun to be had. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a, an entirely different uh, podcast. So um, let's uh, move on to our final article for this week. Um, and uh, this one is on InfoQ. Um, and it's a fairly short article, but we've touched on this. I think we've mentioned a couple of times about spot instances and how uh, the spot instance market is changing. Um, so this article um, is uh, kind of summarizing a third party uh, study that's been done um, into the spot market. So I suppose, John, maybe it's worth starting with a, a quick definition of spot instances for anyone who's not familiar um, and then uh, be interested to hear your thoughts on what's going on. Um, in the spot instance market. Yeah, sure. So for those unfamiliar, there are a number of different ways of procuring your EC2 resource. God, I sound so businessy these days. I've been listening to you too much. So there's a number of different ways of running things in EC2. You can use on-demand, which is just give me server, please. You can use reserved instances, which is I will have this server for X amount of time. You can use another type of reserved instance, which I'll have this type of server for X amount of time. You can then apply compute savings plans and EC2 savings plans over the top of your on-demand resources because you've guaranteed that you're going to spend this much money in these categories and they give you a cheaper price. And you can use spot instances. Spot instances do benefit from your compute savings plans because it's just spend in the category. But the way a spot instance works is unlike a, an on-demand or a reserved instance that you say, I will have this and it will be yours forevermore, if you keep paying it and leave it on, a spot instance, you pay significantly less. It was something like 10 or 20% of the price of an on-demand instance when they first came out. But AWS don't guarantee that that server will always be yours. They can take it back with, I think, a two or a three minute notice period if they need the capacity for somebody else to have an on-demand or a reserved instance somewhere else. So basically what they're doing is they're flogging off their unused compute some to you for cheap so that they can kind of maximize the unit economics effectively. Spot instances are really good for very specific workloads, things that can tolerate being interrupted, things that are stateless or where state is managed not on the server, that kind of thing. They work quite nicely with things like ECS and EKS because with the right uh, scheduling tools, if an instance goes down somewhere, you can just bring another one up somewhere else. And so long as you have your minimum instances set and your system is set up that it, if it can't get spot instances, it will just pull up an on-demand instance because they're pretty well always available in on-demand, then it works quite nicely. And I've built EKS clusters using this before with things like pod auto-scaling and cluster scaling and that kind of thing. So the idea being that a server will occasionally get destroyed, you get a little bit of notice, so your system brings a new one up, moves your pods over, moves your containers over, the other one gets binned off, and you didn't even notice because it just kind of all happened. And that works really well. It does. It's, it's great. But they don't work for things that can't tolerate being interrupted. So you wouldn't necessarily want to run your big um, data processing workloads, for argument's sake, on them. Right. That's the definition. That's a very long definition. 
in terms of what's happening with the pricing is they're just getting more expensive and you're kind of seeing this in the graph and honestly i like a graph because graphs are really easy to digest i know you like a graph they, love is, a graph yeah yeah this especially is not, a pie chart this is not a pie i'm afraid this no. is this is a line graph that i don't like the look of because what it's kind of showing is that in areas where prices are spiking, they're going really high comparatively to what they used to be. Yeah, they're still really tiny numbers. It's like 0 0.00025 of a dollar to 0.00175 of a dollar. So it's gone from a quarter of 1% of a dollar to like 1% of a dollar. So it's, like, it's, it's gone up significantly, but the numbers are still quite small. Why do we think this is? Why do we think they're getting more expensive? Well, I have a couple of guesses. And chip shortage, that's been rumbling on now for, what, four years? It's not going away. NVIDIA are really guilty of this because they're just not spitting GPUs out quickly as they could. Um, GPU shortage on top of the generic chip shortage is another thing. Um, it's just things are harder to get hold of generally, which is presumably why they're pushing the Graviton thing because they can kind of control their own manufacturing a lot better. Yeah. Uh, it's just uh, basic supply and demand. I think the article says it in here. Um, isn't this just a case of if more people are using spot at the same time, there's less spot instances available? That's, that's what it is. I think mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people have cottoned on to this. I do wonder what's going to happen to the kind of third-party market of tools to help you manage spot instances, et cetera, because it seems like all roads are leading to savings plans at the moment. Um, I, can't, I think we spoke about this on the podcast last week that um, now the pricing tool, uh, the AWS pricing tool, when you go for the uh, through the pricing options section, savings plans are front and center and reserved instances are hidden. Mm. Um, and it seems uh, that uh, potentially um, AWS are trying to discourage spot usage as well. Um, I don't think that that's fair because your compute savings plans, I think, apply to spot instances as well because it's just a different type of server, whereas reserved instances versus savings plans are more of a billing instrument. So I don't yeah. think that's a fair comparison. But yes, more it's unit economics. More people are using them, there's less available. And every so often, AWS will come out with an article saying, here's how you can maximize your spot usage. We saw one four or five weeks ago and discussed it on, on the pod. Um, where they say, make sure that you're spread across AZ, try and be multi-region, those kind of things. Um, you know, if, you know, there's not a lot of demand in, in, say, Stockholm region, so can you run your workloads there? That kind of thing. But yes, I think you're, it's basic economics. More people are using them, and there's less GPUs and things available, so AWS are building out data centers slower than they used to be. Mm. Cool. Well, on that note, we've reached the end of our time available today. So, well, that was much uh, harder you. without a guest. I didn't like it. <laughs> you had to do a lot more talking. Even <laughs> I did a bit more talking than I usually do. So, uh, yeah. But uh, we'll be back uh, next week with uh, a guest, hopefully. Uh, we've certainly got a good, strong pipeline of guests booked in for the next few episodes of Logicast. So, <coughs> excuse me. Always oh, dying. Whilst he dies, I'll, I'll do the, the exit, shall I? So you can get Logicast on any major platform where you normally get your podcast. Please do subscribe and download it. Really feeds the ego and we get some really nice graphs. Um, we will see you, see you, speak to you, sort of, next time. <laughs>